guys. Welcome back to the Diaspora Radio. Welcome back. Glad to hear you guys, I guess. I'm like, I can't see you. Well, we can't hear you either, technically. But um, <laughs> welcome back. Talking to and you, right? uh, so this week, we decided we're going to switch things up a little bit. We know we said on the Instagram that we were going to go with, oh, like, everything circa 1930s. We wanted to get into the Israeli Arab conflict, but there's just so much there. And we had, well, first, we had technical difficulties trying to connect to our our Israeli correspondent, Klein yeah. Kaufman. So that didn't really Koffer. work. Koffer. Oh, <laughs> I just made it. Like, you go from Jewish to like- To more Jewish, more yeah. Jewish. Um, and then I went back to work this week, finally, from the COVID pandemic being, we're, we're just starting to get things going again. So it's been just a hectically insane week and we didn't have everything as organized as we should have. Um, and the way that we want to explain it to you guys and make sure everything is correct. So we decided to switch up. We just kind of want to paint the scene of what's going on with with Judaism, how Judaism kind of came into being, how Jews came into being, came into being from being the Israelites that they were in the desert and set the scene for what leads into, you know, 1930s and and boycotts, massacres and the rise of Arab nationalism, the, the founding of Israel. Like we want to explain what's going on. So we're still going to try to cover, give you, I guess, a background story, cover a lot of that. And then hopefully then next week we can actually start to get into like more of the nitty gritty Israeli Arab conflict, Israel becoming a state, the nitty gritty, everything. All those details that just seriously, if you guys have never looked into the history, like I've done it, I definitely have taken this in history classes, religious history classes, political courses. And it's just so much to try to fit in into like a 20 minute episode. It's like, it's, it's, we can't fit it all in correctly in a 20 minute episode for you guys. Um, that being said, let's get started on this week's topic. Yes. So Judaism. So Judaism itself, you know, our religion right now is 5,780 years old. And we, we get a lot, I guess our roots of our, our connection to Israel comes from the Torah. So I just want to start with in Genesis that this is from Genesis 15, 16 and 17. Uh, it says, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your seed to eternity. And I will make your seed like the dust of the earth so that if a man will be able to count the dust of the earth, so will your seed be counted. Rise, walk in the land to its length and to its breadth, for I will give it to you. And this is God speaking to Abraham. So this starts the promise that Jews feel like this is our land. And uh, Ray, you actually have a section that you wanted to read as I well. I do. So this is from the book Jewish Literacy, which we will uh, cite in our show notes. Even during the centuries when the Jews comprised only a small minority of the population, no other people ever claimed the land as their country. Palestine was simply regarded as the Arab world, or in the Arab world, as southern Syria, and the Arabs living there were considered Syrians. The rise of Zionism in the late 1800s was a new political movement in Jewish life, and its focus on Israel and the Jewish homeland, however... The movement was basing itself on an idea as old as Judaism itself. Jewish history began with God's revelation to Abraham at the first encounter with the patriarch. God did not speak about monotheism. The first words he proclaimed to Abraham were about the land of Israel. Go to the land that I will show you. Genesis 12.1. From then on, Jews felt an extraordinary attachment to Israel. During a terrible famine, when Jacob was forced to go to Egypt with his sons, he made Joseph promise that he would be buried in Israel. It was still known as Can then. Hundreds of years later, when the Babylonians exiled the Jews from their homeland, the prophet Jeremiah used his remaining funds to buy a parcel of land in Israel. Even as he left for what appeared to be the permanent exile, he wanted a deed that could be passed to later Jews, showing that they own land in Israel. So our our connection, our Jewish connection, goes very far back. And even after, like, Ray, you touched on it in this chapter that the Jews were in Egypt and we were in, like, you know, we ended up there. I want to say Jews. Let me correct myself. Israelites. We, we still remained... Like we had that hope that we knew we were going to be saved. We knew that we were going to end up in that promised land one day. Um, In fact, it says, according to Exodus, 
uh, God had said, and you shall be to me a kingdom of princes and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. So when we are finally freed from 400 years, I think it was 400 years of slavery by Moses, and you guys all know the story, um, we ended up at Mount Sinai where we had this covenant and this bread with God to be the well, essentially to take on, to become like a marriage between the Jewish people and God, that we're going to uphold the covenant, the commandments. And with, like you know, we wander the desert 40 years. We are Israelites. Until we enter the land of Israel, we, we do as God says. We conquer the land of Canaan and we become within that land. We become this tribe. Well, we are a tribal people. We were a tribal people in Egypt. Actually, mm-hmm. you had... So here's another excerpt from Jewish literacy. It says, During the centuries of Egyptian slavery, when the Hebrews apparently maintained, or the Hebrews apparently maintained their tribal identity, when Joshua leads them into Can, he divides the land into separate sections for each tribe. Joseph's descendants are given a double portion, and two tribes are named after his sons, Ephraim and Menashee. Excuse me if I didn't pronounce those right. (laughs) One tribe, Levi, or Levi, Uh, receives no land at all. Although the Levites are assigned certain cities in which to live, they are designated uh, as the teachers and spiritual spiritual emissaries for the other tribes, all of whom are taxed to support the Levites. About two centuries later, following the death of King Solomon, the Jewish state split in two. Ten tribes broke off and formed the kingdom of Israel, and the remaining non-Levite tribe, Judah, formed the kingdom of Judah. In 722 BCE, the Assyrians conquered the kingdom of Israel, exiling and scattering its inhabitants. Since then, the ten tribes' whereabouts has been unknown. Modern Jews, as a result, are assumed to descend from either the Levites or a subdivision within them called the uh, Konim, or from the tribe of Judah. The ten lost tribe. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we we wanted. There's two two very important things about this. First of all, when we say Jews are indigenous. This is one of the reasons. So I've, I've alluded to this, or I've actually spoken about this in the past. So Martinez Cobes study from the UN, um, I think it was 1980s on indigenous peoples. Part of the definition of what is indigenous, I'm just going to read you the first three things. Actually, I'm going to read you, they're pretty important. So I'm going to read you the five uh, factors that make it up, but there is more. There's a, there's a whole study on it. I'm just going to read you five things that... Keep in mind the Jewish people, what we just told you about the Jews coming into the land and how Judaism was born from this land or the Israelites going into what is now Israel. And actually Israel is just a small fraction of of that biblical land. The actual biblical territory was much, much larger. So I just want to keep in mind, think of the Jewish people when I read this. So one of what makes you indigenous, sorry. So one, occupation of ancestral lands or at least part of them. Two, common ancestry with the original occupants of these lands. Three, culture in general or in specific manifestations such as religion, living under a tribal system, membership of an indigenous community, dress, means of livelihood, lifestyle, etc. Four, language, whether used as the only language as mother tongue, as a habitual means of communication at home or in the family, or as the main preferred habitual general or normal language. Five, residents on certain parts of the country or in certain regions of the world. So although Jews, like, I'm, I'm speeding ahead a little bit right now. But although we were, you know, a minority in our own land for so long and we, we are in the diaspora, we still have that connection. And when we came into that land, we basically, Judaism was born there. So the fact that we have certain holidays that revolve around trees and, mm-hmm. and fields and went well, to and farm. When and we pray for rain, yeah, we don't pray for rain in our own land at the, at, the, at the time of the year where our own land needs it. We pray for the time of the year when Israel needs Israel rain. needs it. And our tribes, like the whole system, our language, everything is unique to to the Israelites. It's unique to 
to the Hebrew, like the, the Jewish people. So that is what makes us indigenous. So we went into this land. This land became became Jewish. It became the Jewish homeland. This and is, is where Judaism is from. It's A lot of it is based, or a lot of our identity is based on that as well. That's that's my second point I wanted to discuss with you guys was when you mentioned in that passage about the Assyrians and the Assyrians conquering. So it was within the land that the Israelites became Jews since Jew comes from the word, the word Yehuda, which comes from the tribe of Judah. When the Assyrians conquered the kingdom of Israel in the 5th century BCE, Yehudi or Jew was used to refer to all Israelites, even those from other tribes. So when you look at a language, like I'm pretty sure Arabic and so many other languages have Yehudi or like that is, it means It's the general basis. Most languages, that is the base of the word is Yehudi. Which is- Or Yehud or Yid or- Yes. And it, it, again, this is, is in regards to a specific territory- in what is now modern day Israel. Mm-hmm. So this is our ancient connection. This is this is what makes us indigenous is that you can apply a lot of our stuff to any other place. We, we connect to that and our religion is based on that land, that inherent connection to it. And we were conquered, like so many people try to conquer us. There was the Persians, Greeks, Romans, Arabs, Fatimids, Seljuks, Turks, Crusaders, Egyptians, Mamaleks, Islamists, and others. And that's all from history.com. But there's so many others in between then where People would come and they did. They did try to oppress us. They mm-hmm. or they did. They did try to conquer, and the Romans did when they like with yeah. the Second Temple. Exactly, and yet we have always maintained a presence in the land and in the holy cities. Yes, exactly. So that's actually let's talk about. So after the Second Temple, when the Romans renamed the destruction of the Second Temple, seventy two, I think CE, the Romans renamed or is actually so seventy two, I think CE, but I don't know you're or one thirty five. I'm pretty sure you're right. Um, the Romans renamed the land of, well, it was the kingdoms, and they renamed it to Syria, Palestinia, or named after the Philistines. After the Philistines, which was the actually means, of the Jews, and it actually means like uh, occupier, yeah. wasn't it, or something yeah, like that? Yeah, occupation, I'm like, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Invader. I think it was invader yeah. or something. So, so that that's where that name came from. They did it to spite the Jews, but this was the Jewish land for like thousands of years up until that point. And uh, a really interesting article I read from Stan with us by, it was a guest writer, I believe Randy Kessler is his name. He asks, he writes his article and he he asks a rhetorical question within it. He's like, so basically after Israel was or renamed, like after it was renamed Palestine, did, did this mean that Palestine exists? And he answers his own question and says, actually, no, there never was a nation, kingdom or republic called Palestine. The name has always reflected a geographic region controlled by various conquering empires, including the Byzantine, Arab, Islamist, Crusader, or Ottoman. Each seized and colonized the Jewish homeland, making Jews an oppressed minority in their own country. And that reminds me of what you you just said, that Jews, when when this happened to us, it's not like we just like left and we're like, that's it, we're out, somebody yeah. else take it, land's for sale or whatever. The Jews stayed within the land, but they might not have had a majority in somewhere they weren't allowed to be or something somewhere they weren't allowed to practice like in jerusalem they might have gone then to like when they did spot tiberius hebron all these other religious centers and that's where you see like second temple era start to think about christianity coming in now and jesus like that the galilee and all that like there's you know this these tensions were there already between the romans the occupying the occupying people who try to occupy us essentially so after that israel kind of or israel i want to say the jews were there they were present but other people would come in and conquer the land and take ownership 
doesn't mean that the Jews denounced their indigenous connection to the land. It just meant that we were an oppressed minority within our land. So from 1517 to 1917, the Ottomans were actually in control. And I think it was weird because I read an article. I didn't realize this today, the other day. But Egypt was actually in control, I think, of, I guess it would have been Palestine. Um, but I think it was like 1800s. And I read that the European powers actually were like, give it back. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't realize that was a thing. But it, there was a lot of... Yeah, again, even amongst themselves, like if you look at the Crusades, there's always battles and fights for like the Holy City and everything. So now I want to jump ahead a lot um, into the 1800s, just prefacing this with like the fact that at this point, Ottoman Empire's in control of the land. The land is pretty desolate, and that's actually going to help us lead into the Aliyahs. So leading up to the Aliyahs, the Jews had been marginalized within wherever they were within the diaspora. They are in, you know, Spain, and we go through Spanish Inquisition. Mm -hmm. You are in Europe, East, West. We're going through pogroms. We're going through, well, I mean, medi medieval era. Jews are being burnt burnt in castles or, uh, like, all these terrible tortures, like, blood Probably libel. any terrible, horrible thing you can imagine to be done to a person. Yeah. Really. We weren't, we try to fit in. We try to trade. We try to do stuff. They, they kept us in a group. They didn't want us to involve us, and that's, you know, 1800s when we see the pogroms, we were this... You, you see, like, I picture, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, but, like, to the max. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's shuttle people. They were, they spoke Yiddish. They kept to themselves. It was, it was, it was weird. It was very weird times. Like, they weren't welcomed into society. I know I was reading, I'm reading a book, um, Israel, A History by Anita Shapira. And it's super, it's very interesting. Because we, she talks about how the Jews, like, were seen as this, almost like a poor, dumb peasant people. Pretty much. Like, I know that's not what she says, but. I'm paraphrasing here. Well, that sums it up. That's kind of what it is. And that's leading into this is why the Jews, like the Jews had already been making pilgrimage to, I want to say pilgrimage to Palestine, but this is. But it was, it was not in large numbers and it was more voluntary than the first Aliyah was. Yes. Um. So in 1882 to 1903, the first Aliyah followed uh, pogroms in Russia in 1881 to 1882. The first group of 14 billion arrived at Yaffa port on July 6, 1882. Most of the Olium or new immigrants uh, during this period, came from Eastern Europe. A small number also arrived from Yemen. Members of Hibat Zion and Balu, two early Zionist movements that were the mainstays of the First Aliyah, defined their goal as political, national, and spiritual resurrection of the Jewish people in Palestine. So you, like, actually back, referring back to this book that I'm reading about nationalism, the rise of nationalism, this predated Zionism, and I think that's the point we want to really, this we want to get this It was more here. out of necessity and... Yes. Safety reasons. Really. It was like an ideal. You you have this, because originally up to that point, Jews were like praying, like the Jews within the diaspora, the Jews that were, were not in Israel or Palestine at that time. The Jews had been thinking, you know, God's going to have outstretched arms and fulfill the biblical prophecy that we will return. And then you see it. Yeah. Like you said, out of necessity, Jews are starting to say like enough of this anti-Semitism, enough of not being accepted within society. And they started just to flee. And actually, I have an interesting passage that I have from this book that I just read. I just want to set the scene of what is going on and what it was like to be a Jew at that time. Because as nations, like all nation states, started to become more nationalist. So you have like, um, for example, you have like, is it Polish? I think Germany, like a bunch of those countries around the air, like Eastern Europe, Western Europe. We're starting, France included was a part of this. They're starting to look at their roots and their histories. And that's when you see like the... I think it was the, rom the romanticism of cultures of like bringing back dead languages, looking at their Roman Greco heritage and like, yeah, you see a lot of that. And I think this is, I personally think this is what led up to a uh, rise of German like nationalism leading up to 
like Holocaust, I want to say, because a lot of, I read Heinrich Himmler's, Himmler's book, his uh, biography, and they discuss like the, the textbooks he would have read that would be like, I'm probably, like probably turn of the century, like 19, like I want to say late 1800s, early 1900s that talk about, you know, the Jews are this, the Jews are that. And it's all this blood libel. It's these terrible things that we're saying, but it was that, that, you know, that strong German, like, look at our history. We are the the strong Vikings. We are the Nordic. We are this. Like, it was going into mythology and that. So everyone was feeling it at this time. And unfortunately for the Jews, the Jews weren't really, if they wanted to be a part of those, say they were in France, they would have to denounce their Judaism. They'd have to ju- denounce that Jewish connection in order to be part of, like, a French Catholic nationalist country and the same in whatever country they're a part of. However... Here's where I want to read to you guys. Even if the Jews did that, they still still weren't seen. Even if they wanted to assimilate and they dropped their language and they dropped their religious ties, they still were seen as Jews, which is reminds me of our Jews are not white yeah. kind of kind of talk in our in our last or uh, podcast a while back about Jewish pride. So here's here's what this passage is from Anita Shapira. It says the old hatred of Jews had been aimed at the alien, different Jew, whereas anti-Semitism targeted the Jew who looked like anyone else, who spoke the local language, whose appearance and behavior was middle class who took part in and even created national culture. Anti-Semites accused the Jews of causing all of capitalist society's ills, inciting to revolution and undermining the existing order. They pictured the Jews as parasites incapable of establishing a society or culture of their own, who rode on the backs of other peoples and copied or perverted their cultures. Since Jews were unable to truly integrate into a culture, their cultural creations were artificial, neither authentic nor original. Which, I mean, when I read that, that haunted me because I'm thinking about really, guys, we're recording this July 2020. We just found out about the whole Nick Cannon thing and going off about the... Yeah, that's been all this week and Ice Cube and... Because who was it? Deshaun Jackson. Deshaun Jackson and who are they? What's his name? That they were Louis Farrakhan. Yeah. That they're saying. So there's, again, we're seeing this... Reverend Farrakhan. Him again. (laughs) We've discussed him before on the podcast. You have to backtrack on some of our episodes, but just that, that... It's blood libel. Like all this anti-Semitic, like Jews run the world banks. Jews are this. Mm-hmm. Jews control Hollywood. They control the media. And if if you speak out against what we're saying, then then you're like, a, I don't know. I don't even know. Like a Jewish Zionist, yeah. whatever, believer. They brainwash you. I don't Sympathizer know. Sympathizer. Yeah. Something. So this proves our point and, and stuff. So this is not dead. This is recirculating. And I definitely am seeing so many similarities. And, yeah. and it's interesting too, because the Jews within, when you start to look at the history like that, there were so many Jews that were like, oh, well, if they're wanting to accept us in their society for the first time, well, let's just drop our language. Like, so they would only come off as a Jew in home. There's actually a quote in there. I can't remember it right now, but something about being a Jew within the tent. Like at home, I will be Jewish. At home, you will see that I'm visibly Jewish, that I'm speaking Yiddish. But like in, in with my friend group, when I'm out in society, when I'm at work and in school, I'm not a Jew. And they didn't, they were like, oh, it's like a, it's like, ugh, it's yeah. just beneath me. And that's, I find that it's really interesting because I know we're I very outspoken. Exactly where I was yeah. going with that. It's 100%. just sad. And so when you have Jews, we're talking about the Aliyahs coming into to Palestine. This land was, again, remember, this is desolate. Yeah. Ottoman owned, desolate. The Ottoman Empire at that time had crippling taxes. And so- a lot of the time there was absentee landlords. Jews had to purchase the land for hugely, hugely inflated prices. prices. Yeah. There's like, this is a little bit older, but it's like in the 1940s, there's like a statistic that says the land that the Jews were buying from the uh, Arab, like absentee landlords from either the Turkish or the Fellahin at that time, they were charging $1,100 an acre. Whereas 
like arable farmland in Idaho was selling at 110. And there's other fees too that the Jews had to pay. Desolate land. This like, was, was malaria-ridden swamps. swamps that they turned into orange yes. groves through hard work. And there's so many recounts through like history where there's, I think it was Mark Twain. There's actually a quote from Mark Twain that I have to yeah, find. Exactly and he talks mean. about how there's nothing there. Like guys, it's like when we say there is nothing, we mean like there's no cities. It's not the Israel that you picture today. Palestine was like, it was literally just, it was an arm of the Ottoman Empire that had just been desecrated. So I want to just read a little bit. I found this really interesting. There's a that person um, where they have his like journals and his like his accounts of being in the land of Palestine. He was, I think, a Christian. He went there to settle and spread Christian Christianity. His name was H.B. Tristam, which is kind of ironic that his <laughs> Tristam was there spreading Christian. So he said, according to his uh, 18th century recounts of the land, and this is 1865 from um, Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge in London. Uh, his his book was called, or his, like this is called, you can find it, in the Land of Israel, a Journal of Travels in Palestine. So he says, a few years ago, ago, the whole gore was in the hands of the Fellahin and much of it cultivated for corn. Now the whole of it is in the hands of the Bedouin who eschew all agriculture except for a few spots cultivated here and there by their slaves and with the Bedouin come lawlessness and uprooting of all Turkish authority. No government is now acknowledged on the east side and unless for port acts with greater firmness and caution than his then is his won't. Palestinians or Palestine will be desolated and given up to the nomads. The same thing is now going on over the plains of Sharon, where both in the north and the south, land is going out of cultivation and whole villages are rapidly disappearing from the face of the earth. Since the year 1838, no fewer than 20 villages have been thus erased from the map and the stationary population extirpated. Very rapidly, the Bedouin are encroaching wherever horse can be ridden, and the government is utterly powerless to resist them or to defend its subjects. This is on page 490 of this journal. And it, there is more about it, but this is just helping to paint the picture that when the Jews are coming, they're not up, like they're not taking over. They're not uprooting like some native population. Again, Jews are indigenous. They're not colonized. They're not, they're not colonizing it. Exactly. They're not coming to like put in their flag and be like, this is because of Zionism. This is predating Zionism. This is like early 1800s and Jews are coming to this land to escape. Horrible treatment. Death. And yeah. yeah. And they came there for this and they came to a very empty, desolate land where they had to pay crazy amounts to get a swamp. And most of them didn't (laughs) even know how to farm because the ones coming from Eastern Europe and Russia we're not allowed to own farmland in their home countries. Oh my gosh. So when they did come and when they did buy this land, they had to even figure out how to develop it and how to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much like that paints a picture of it. And that's exactly what we want to explain to you guys. So that being said, that's uh, all we have time for this week, unfortunately. But next week, we're going to we're gonna start off again on the same topic. We're going to start off on the beginning of the Zionist movement, Theodore Herzl, and the beginning of the Arab-Israeli kind of conflict and the tensions that started that. Yeah, that's where we're going to get into kind of what we discussed in the po- or in the on Instagram or post where we're talking about like you know the tensions, um, the British because this you know you have Balfour yeah, Declaration and you it. have so many and other the White Paper and so many so many other <laughs> so things. many commissions and so many things. So we're going to discuss that, but I'm glad that we were able to kind of give you guys a bit of a background because that that history is just so important. It is really important. To understand that. So thank you guys so much. We hope you have a wonderful week and we'll catch you next week. Catch you guys next week. Bye.